Docs Podcast, the documentary podcast for all of us. I'm Tony Bell, the creator and host. I would like to acknowledge the traditional ancestral unceded territory of the Tongva and the Chumash on which this podcast is being recorded. Tongva native plant educator Barbara Drake is co-founder of the Chia Cafe Collective. The collective is a grassroots group dedicated to honoring all the indigenous peoples of Southern California and their connection to the land and native plants. Working with various agencies, organizations, schools, and tribal communities, the collective offers native food workshops and classes, gathers, processes, and distributes plants to elders and others, and transplants native plants in areas slated for development, cultivating them in gardens in order to share seeds and cuttings. In this episode, I speak with the head of Doc Industry Program at Doc Leipzig, Bridget O'Shea. Doc Leipzig is the oldest documentary festival in the world and starts at the end of the month. In our conversation, Bridget and I chat about how she left her native Australia to live in Germany for the past 15 years, Doc Leipzig, which runs from October 26th through to November 1st, and the new organization she founded, the Documentary Association of Europe. Because she is an Aussie at heart, the sweet song is Minute Works Down Under. With every podcast, I kind of like just like to tell people, our audience, like how we met. So um, I first heard of you um, when um, Renell, our producer, got back from Leipzig in, I think it was 20, yeah, 2016, and she had nothing but praise for you. And um, she's like, this girl, Bridget, like, she's, like, she's my friend. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and then when I was invited to um, go to attend um, Leipzig for the first time, I think most of our correspondence was um, via email, but when I got there, I I was so impressed by you because you were running the show, and I remember there was this one um, one one party uh, where in the <laughs> museum, and yeah. like everybody was talking, everybody was talking, everybody was talking, everybody's drinking and talking and having a good time, mm-hmm. and you got on the mic. And like, as soon as you got on the mic, you commanded that audience. It wasn't like you had to say, excuse me, um, excuse me a few times. I got yeah. no time for that. I got yeah, no time. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. And then, you know, we, yeah, we had the opportunity to talk and then you arranged this wonderful dinner. Oh, yeah. At, well, what was that restaurant's name? Yeah, okay. So it's in a restaurant in Leipzig called Tunisgut. Um, which means like don't do good th- don't do good things so like be bad essentially oh I didn't know that okay cool that's even better um, and it's in the it's actually like really close to my house and it's a place that I really liked going to because like I love a glass of Riesling I can't lie and so they have like a really good Riesling there but it's not really designed for dinners so we had to yeah I don't know the whole thing was a bit nutty but it was I do I love throwing a dinner party I love like giving people the to like know each other yeah and it was like I think it was probably like maybe 12 of us maybe it, it was a large group but I mean I remember looking around the table and it's like okay folks from the U.S. folks from the the Ukraine yeah. um Czech I think the Czech Republic um well, probably. Macedonia yeah, yeah like all over and I, I look I'm like look at all these like powerful women documentary filmmakers doing their thing and there were filmmakers and those who ran festivals and we just had an amazing time that night like that that particular night for me in Leipzig was, was so incredibly special for me oh. um 
yeah, so I mean, I just love like having those um, it, those interactions um, with folks. Um, so, and then I was invited back to Leipzig, and you actually you gave me some duties. Well, I always do duties. I always do meetings with filmmakers, but you gave me an extra duty and honor of being on the um, committee to um, vote for the best female director, um, and that was great. And we actually had. Um, Goldie Saman Konu won the award and we had her on the show for episode three. Um, yeah, so that was like a wonderful opportunity um, as well. You are Australian <laughs> and you've been in Germany forever. And I just, I never heard the story about how, like what made you decide to like immigrate from Australia to Germany? Cause that's, <laughs> that's like a huge deal. Like you're uprooting your life to move to a whole new country. Okay, so first of all, Tony Bell, you are the, and also Renelle, both of you are the best festival guests. So if any festival programmers or um, organizers are listening, they should 100% invite you to attend their festivals and put you on juries or whatever else, because you are very, very good guests and you're always like down to do things and like give your time for people. So you are also like right up there on my list of like favorite people to invite every year. And, and we're lucky with the festival that we have the ability to do that for some people. So it's like, it's also, it's for me, it's very reciprocal actually. Like I try to be a good host, but I also love to have really good guests when it's like, when we're like jazzing together, it always makes me feel very good. It's like my happiest, happiest time. So I moved to Germany when I was, I was either 19 or 20. I can never remember, but it's like 15 years ago. I think I've always been like, I'm not like afraid of a challenge and I don't know if ever know if that's like an if it's an intelligent thing or if it's like an idiocy thing like <laughs> I'm just like I'm an like an idiot bumbling through life is what I usually tell people like hoping for the best I had like a I have two versions of this story like I have the version I guess that I told my parents and my friends and I don't know whoever was listening back then which was that I really wanted to come to Berlin because I thought it would be I was interested in, so I have a, a, a fine arts degree essentially, like with cinema studies and art history. And, and I really liked the contemporary art that was coming out of Berlin. Like um, it was an interesting time, like before, before the World Cup in 2006, which was really, I mean, Berlin is a city that's constantly in transition anyway. Like it's always changing and it's not very old, like compared to like Paris or Rome, it was, it's like oh because of what happened with world war ii and the of course you know, the bombing of, yeah and everything yeah of course of course and then with the transition but it for, like if the city itself is kind of from like the 1400s so it's not even like old the way other cities are old like european old yeah i was like oh it's interesting i'll have like an interesting time there and the the art school and the schools that i went to here on a university exchange had, had interesting programming too with like interesting lecturers, I thought I would be like an academic. My plan was that I would like stay within a university context probably and, and like teach and be alone with my books, which is now very funny because I'm a very social person and yes. I work entirely <laughs> about people and has very little to do with books. But um, yeah, so I, so I went on this university exchange and that was supposed to be six months and it ended up being two years. And I also thought like, the only way that I'm going to be able to immigrate because I don't have a European passport and my parents are not fancy people, but they're very nice people, but like it's not fancy where I grew up or the context of, of how I grew up. And um, so I was like, the only way that I'll be able to get out of Australia, which was my real goal, is if I go as a student 
and then work out this visa situation because because I didn't have the passport and but I didn't think it would like last this long (laughs) (laughs) I thought like maybe five years or something and then like the European Union would like realize that I'm not a fancy lady that's enough like send her back back where she came from that's what I thought would happen and then actually that that wasn't the case and so I really I tried to make like good strategic decisions about like how to keep a visa. Like that was kind of always my number one, one thing to make sure that I could stay. And along the way, then I fell, fell into this film stuff. But the true answer, the really true answer is that I thought that Berlin sounded like a good party. You like, so you wanted to go to the party city. Yeah, I wanted to go party. And so I was like, I want to go to Berlin and I want to go out all night and I want to like, I'd read like a lot of books about like the Soviet Union and Perestroika. And I was like, I want to get in on that. That sounds like a good time, which is, like, the real, which is the real truth. But also like the, fr- the framework of the university was very freeing for me. I really liked like having the ability to not necessarily reinvent myself, but have like a very clean slate where you could start kind of from zero and build your way up freed of like the baggage of whatever. What, what university did you go to? So I took courses at the UDK, which is the art school here, and also at the Free University of Berlin. Um, And I did that because I also didn't speak German when I moved here. I was given kind of the impression by my university in Australia that they would have English courses, which like, I remember like the first day I went to like um, matriculate, like to enroll. And I was like, so where are the English courses at? And the lady was just like, English courses what are you talking about you crazy person so I had to I was like oh all right so you had to learn German quickly yeah real quick six weeks six weeks but I mean it's always still a work in progress it's also it probably could be better it's not perfect but it's also enough to get by and um or more than enough to get by but it's enough it's for me it's like driving a car it's like you have a driver's license so you can get from a to b and speaking like the languages for me is about I'm not like interested in linguistics or particular talent for it at all but then yeah so I took those took those courses and then I like I had a wonderful time and then ironically my my friend at the time sent me a link to a Craigslist ad and in the Craigslist ad the Berlinale the Berlin International Film Festival and the Berlinale Talents which is like their um, training program that runs parallel to the film festival were looking for like summer interns and I was and I was like, oh, that sounds interesting. Like, I like, I like the movie. <laughs> <laughs> so idiot. you had never really thought about film or documentary as a career at all. No, you're like, okay, this is cool. I'll, I'll try it out. Yeah, I was like, that sounds good. Like, it's interesting. I always liked, I liked, you know, like teamwork and stuff. And I was like, oh, that sounds like an interesting thing. And I mean, I'd taken like one module at university on documentary cinema. So I had seen a few things, which probably was also good. And I was like going to the movies a lot and like watching a lot of, a lot of things. I'm really like non-discerning. I'll watch pretty much anything. So I went in with that. And then this is all before also the financial crisis. So which like 2008 also changed the trajectory of my career. And that's how I wound up at Doc Leipzig. So I work also in Doc Leipzig since 2010. So it's like a really significant part of my life, I would say. Right. So, but you were at, um, with Berlinale Talents for like five, no, how long? I think I did like, so it was, it was season, like kind of seasonal work. So like you would work a few months of the year there. I had one year where I worked there like pretty consistently. And that was 
2007 to 2009, I was there like a lot. And then after like the financial crisis then came, like the, the contracts were kind of shortened for everyone. Um, and then, and so, but I, I knew about Doc Leipzig because like, again, like I'm, I'm kind of interested in East and Central Europe and also in East, East West narrative. I was interested in East and West narratives. And so like the, the history of Doc Leipzig is also that it was kind of set up as a, as a bridge, bridging experience for filmmakers from the East and the West. And it also is almost as old as the Billinale. It's the oldest festival for animation and documentary. And so I like knew of its existence. And also at that stage, um, like the, the way that the European Union was financing projects had also changed. And so these festivals like IDFA or Sheffield or Doc Leipzig or Nordisk Panorama, CPH Docs, we all got access to these grants that were to bring, to create like kind of stimulate or to stimulate the European film market on different kinds of levels and to also to become like competitive in the international market to make sure that European documentary or the European films more generally could like move. Yeah, well I wanted to say um, for our audience, so um, just a little teeny bit of history on the city of Leipzig. It actually used to be in East Germany. Yeah, um, so um, it definitely has a, a unique feel, feel to it, you know. Also, I was having a, I was, I, I like to have, I don't know, I, this makes me sound like an alcoholic, which I'm not, but like I no, like to ahead. have drinks with people, <laughs> yes. like have drinks with people and find out things. I really do. I love like a gossip and like a drink and just to see like where the conversation is going to go. <laughs> I'm always very curious to go on these journeys. A Riesling is, is your version of tea. You, yeah. <laughs> Oh God. Yeah. So Doc Leipzig had just got this, these grants from the European Union. And so they were really looking to op open up the international part after also a period of isolation and then rebuilding in the 1990s. Like this was like the push in the mid 2000s to like um, step up a level under the previous uh, festival director, who's a really wonderful person called Klaus Danielsen. And so when I started working there in 2010, it was kind, I was kind of, again, like, a bridging mechanism to bring the international market and my experiences from and very small at the time network from the Bill and Ali also into like Leipzig and so we spent like the, f the first five years I worked there was like a very um, exciting period of like building building the thing and and now that it's built it's not just about maintenance but about like qualitative growth so I'm not really I try not to make it much bigger in terms of like I don't want to have 6,000 accredited guests there. I don't want to have, um, I don't want to have 87 projects in the market. Like I just want to have the right people in the right place at the right time to make things happen for people. And so that's why for me, like organizing those dinners is, is, is just as important as like the actual yes. itself. Mm -hmm. quality over the quantity. Exactly. Exactly. And I just, I just want to live in a world where everybody has like a lot of friends because it's un unbearable and intolerable on so many levels and life in documentary filmmaking is so tricky and terrible and so like I just want to give people the opportunity to make some friends before they have to go to IDFA like two weeks later make connections no because you're all you're all about introducing people yeah. like that that that's what you that's what your mo yeah you know yeah um so tell us what you do at doc leipzig what is your your role okay so i am the head of the industry platform there 
Um, so there's like the festival with the screenings that are targeted at like the public, the general public. And then there's this industry platform that's um, really, I mean, we have a small amount of animation programming, but really we're about creative documentaries. So I also don't really do much with like, I mean, we have broadcasters there and broadcasters are like a super important partner for documentary filmmaking, but like the projects that we invite to like our, our labs or to our markets or to our events are usually more like theatrical 70 minute things that you might see in the cinema or for like the festival circuit rather than TV formats about like animals or something like that's not really what we do. And well, one thing I've noticed um, is that, and I don't know whether, I'm, when I've read through the materials to Doc Labs, I don't know whether this is one of your mandates, but usually the projects are used, are used like early on in the production process. Yeah, yeah, and that's yeah. that's dictated by the European marketplace, actually. It's the way, it's the way that, so we're, we're really like a co-production market, so that means we're trying to help people build co-productions and also really like the the producers are, for me, like the the backbone, or we call them the backbone of the audiovisual market. Like they hold a lot of things together. And so we decided to be like a, a really producer oriented market. So like they, they their needs and their wishes come kind of first. And so that's why for producers to be able to take projects to their um, national film funds or to their local film funds, they need to still have like, shooting that needs to be done um like we can't take things that are later for like in post-production or something because the funding structures don't support it so this yeah so it's a bit like you're always i'm always trying to like reach a balance of like bringing projects in that we can actually help but also trying to push the boundaries of what the let's say state mandated um funding system is okay see i didn't realize like that actually is like a mandate because when i've um when i've been in filmmaker meetings and i've recommended that they um submit to the co-pro market um for leipzig you know i've only recommend i've just known that i've only to recommend that to people who are early yeah, on yeah yeah so i but i realized that that there was a specific reason for that. yeah but it's also like exceptions made the rules like sometimes you just really want you want something because you think it makes sense and so then you break the rules and then everybody breaks the rules so it's like it's all sometimes you just have to like just gently push people in a direction and make them think that it's like their idea and that they wanted to do it all all along which is also I think one of the jobs of like the market you should probably um teach a class on that uh yeah i mean i sort of do i do like a i do a workshop called like um how to keep your idiosyncrasy and sanity in the international market when you're pretty sure you're trying to take it away. Because I work, because I do, I work a lot with these. So I work in a big country context, like Germany is, is big and it's wealthy compared to other parts of the EU. And so like sometimes, I mean, Daria, who was at that dinner, I think said something that really also like changed the way that I was organizing my work like because she also travels a lot and she works for the film festival DocuDays in Kiev and yeah tell Staria's last name uh Basel yeah Daria Basel and so she um she said that like you know when you come from Ukraine and you come to like a this European so-called European context of Germany or France in like the big audiovisual markets where we have I don't know like the the German tax system puts like six billion euros or something just alone into like audiovisual content like sport takes like 80 percent of that and then like whatever is left like the crumbs are left for documentary filmmaking but 
even our crumbs are still like um can be like an entire national budget for the year twice you know and so she always says or she said that when she started going to these events like you would feel like you're from mars like you feel like you're just from a completely different planet and then you're on this other planet context and if you as an event organizer aren't like holding them together somehow then it's like a disaster for everybody nobody's having a good time like and i i hate like willful misunderstanding when you feel like someone has willfully like misunderstood who you are because they're not like listening and it and it can go both ways like in the same way that you know if you're if you're small if you're smaller then you can get very defensive and um not understand that criticism is not necessarily coming from a place of judgment or negativity about your work it's just trying to find a way to like make it fit or like in these completely incompatible systems like looking for compatibility is really hard and in the same way that that like the bigger countries also don't necessarily like listen to what the smaller one has to say to them so so getting that right getting that chemistry right i think is like one of the hardest parts of organizing a market but when you can get it right it's very beautiful because then you can do lots of cool things for people which is nice. So I I just want to talk about you and how you you really don't have I like how you don't have time for anybody's mess or nonsense. You know James Brown has in one of line his songs is like ain't going to take no mess. I forget which song it is. I'm really into efficiency. I don't have time to mess around. I'm a very busy person. Yeah. I tried to get a dog in the lockdown but the dog's legs were too short and it didn't walk fast enough. <laughs> So like a foster it was like a foster situation i was like this is we're incompatible this you and i we're not going to work you don't go fast enough like we got to go faster than this i got to get there let's go and my friends were like yeah that that wasn't a good idea i was like i don't know i'm just like trying new things it's me it's not you it's me when i took it back to the like to the animal shelter because it's like a foster situation so you, you don't have to keep it forever if you don't want to but they looked at me like i was dead inside they were like How can you bring this animal back? They're like he's so beautiful. He's the best dog in the world and I was like it's really me. It's not him. Like it was like a bad breakup and I was like so embarrassed. I'm blushing. Like I'm so embarrassed. Again, like that's why I don't know if I'm like a particularly intelligent person. Sometimes I think just like an idiot like bumbling through life hoping for hoping for the best. What else do you want to know? What other like secret shame yeah, okay. share with you and your, your listeners? <laughs> I had it I threw I threw a dinner party last night because I really you asked me before this this session um why I I put on social media this week that yes you were angry <laughs> yeah and I told you I was going to ask you about that why are you so angry Bridget Yeah well one of my deep frustrations is that I can't do the things that I love like like organizing this online festival for me is the most like offensive um It's, it's I'm a, I'm like offended but I'm also not offended because I I'm also like fairness and I think it's like the fairest way to do it. I wouldn't like the idea of if you have like the haves who can come to the event and then like the have-nots who can't be there. That really sucks. And my deeply intelligent and beautiful friend um Temba Bebe also everyone should invite him to their festivals. But please don't also because he's he's like travels a lot and I don't want him to get too tired. So just like the right festivals invite him. <laughs> um that that yeah he calls it like the 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 golden age for inclusion and I, and it's true so like if you can get it if you can get the inclusivity element of these online festivals and events right then you can really open like a lot of doors for people who otherwise who and also my other intelligent friend Marion Schmidt said um who feel like 
they're really not invited, which is not the case. Like my doors are really open for everyone. Everyone's always invited and welcome. But if you don't, sometimes if you don't tell people like really specifically you're invited, please come in. Then also they don't know that the door is open. They can't even see it. Exactly. Like exactly. Just, yeah. We're just like speaking such different, different metaphorical languages or visual languages or whatever. And so, so like that part of it is really interesting. Like that part I'm trying to take like a lot of joy from, but but in but because I'm like a very efficient person and I like to not waste time. Time is very I think time is like a very precious and underrated resource. I really try not to waste other people's time and I don't like having my time wasted. And so like this this just the constant revision of plans just drives me crazy. Like I'm just going yeah because it changes every day because we don't know what the hell this disease is doing but um just to kind of talk about COVID-19 for a minute so how are things in um Germany so the lockdown was real like we definitely had that um but also they started to open things up again in May already and so like so the opening up is good but of course people are encouraged to only like be open if you need to. So like we, I have, I've been to the office twice since January, which is also completely bizarre. And, um, and, but like in terms of like mobility and being like in a social environment, like that stuff, that stuff is back. But in terms of being a responsible event organizer and a responsible citizen in the world, like I just couldn't ask people to come to a meeting place um, this year. I just, I wouldn't be able to do it. Right, and plus, I mean, and the, that market is just so incredibly, uh, people from all over the world come to that market. Yeah, yeah, we're really, we're really international and we really, like I take the international element really seriously and I, I take the idea of trying to create this, like a level playing field for everybody from everywhere to, to compete for those like highly competitive meetings with those highly competitive funders, um, try to give everybody like the best and the same chances. And so to do that means, and also to learn to collaborate together in, in new ways to try and cool off that competition, let's say, which is, I would argue the most boring part of my job. So creating a framework for new, new forms of collaboration is really exciting and and so that just, it just can't, it can't, and you can't risk other people's health and you have to respect that, that the privilege that we have here is not the same as it is other places. And not everybody, even inside this privilege bubble is equal and um, has the same access to the same services and all of that jazz. So like, if you take, if you do take diversity and inclusion to be one of the core mandates of like your work, then then this is the way it has to be. Right, right. Which I accept. I accept this. I accept the part of it. You accept that part of it, even though it's hard, even though it makes you ain't you have bouts yeah, of rage, rage, rage about it. Unbridled burning rage. <laughs> screaming, screaming rage. Tantrum. Like the the works. The works. But I just yeah, I don't know. I I do I would say that I would have some problems with people of authority. I would say that that's like not I'm not like the best at yeah, so so let's let's talk about that. It's actually so part part of the uh, Renell and I's process is so the day before um, that I do my interviews, I write out my questions and then like I call Renell Friday night and I say, okay, like here are my questions and like we'll talk about whether what we need to add and I ask for anything you want to add. 
So one of her questions was, um, how have you been able to navigate a space that is really a completely different generation than you are? But, um, you know, because sometimes people who have been there a minute, they are set in their ways. But also, you've been there a long time, like you're 10 years at Leipzig, but you still keep it fresh and innovative. So how do you navigate the, the OGs, you know, <laughs> the business? I mean, inter intergenerational, intergenerational breakdown in communication is one of like the, I think the hardest, hardest parts of, of being in this industry. If you're a young person who doesn't accept the status quo. And doesn't accept a th certain types of authority. I mean, I also don't believe in a meritocracy. I was going to say, like, I'm also trying to unlearn bad behaviors that I, that I also embody in myself. And I have a friend staying, staying with me this week. And we were also talking about this, like, the constant fight that is the internal misogyny that like is inside all of us. Um, that unlearning that behavior is so, it's so hard. It's so hard. Um, but anyway, the, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I try to, I, when I'm in a fight with an old person, which is unfortunately not infrequently, like I don't never, I don't do things in spite, but in spite of their, their lack of faith, let's say, in, in this, this, this new generation who I have like deep faith in, um, in spite of their lack of faith of whatever I think I'm going to do and I'll just see what happens. I just do it anyway. And so that's where I also, like, I just use my, I use my like, you know, cisgender white privilege to do things, um, I think. And, and action always speaks like louder than words. And so, so I try to be, keep myself accountable. If I say I'm going to do something, then I'm going to do it. And that also doesn't mean that um, that you don't change. Like if you start doing something and it's all going to hell, like you don't just drive the car into the wall, like you try and, and change it. And and the other thing is like, I'm 34 years old and I'm going to have to work for the next 40 years. And so I don't care what they say. <laughs> I do care. I'm interested. I'm very interested to hear what people have to say. I'm very interested in perspectives. I'm always, I have a lot to say and I can be a very bad listener, but I also try, like, try not to be a bad listener as much as I can. And, and I do think that, that, you that there's a lot to learn from experience. And I think also that the past teaches us a lot about like what's happening now. And one of the things I'm also like obsessed with at the moment is like the history of film festivals and how how did we get into this this state that we find ourselves in now why are we here like what what was the where are the roots that have brought us to this situation um for good for good and bad i mean have you been rethinking that just because of how festivals have been impacted by covid probably i mean again like i work in a in a in a context i mean i love i love east and central germany i i'm not gonna like lie i mean it's a it's a super problematic space that it is also has its own traumas and problems to deal with as many places do in the world and it doesn't have a history of the same kind of immigration that other places do so it also and kind of economic slavery to west germany and all kinds of things so there's mm. like a mm. you know it's a problematic place on many different levels, including it has, it's kind of the home of modern German neo-Nazism and all kinds of things. So it's like a, it's a, it's not a simple context to work in. 
Um, but, but in general, like I would say that it's always good to keep a healthy skepticism towards one's work and the frame, framework that one works in. And so, I mean, the, the truth is we don't even have like, gen we don't even have gender parity for God's sake, you know, with all of our public money. And so, right. so I mean, we do in, in the market, but like, because I work, work hard for it. You work hard at it. Yes. But there's also that there's so, there's so many levels of discrimination and elitism and class warfare that comes along with media making and with the space, the exhibition spaces, if it's for projects that are in development to then like the completed films we show in the festival and so I am like kind of like obsessed with like information and and I a lot of stuff I don't take personally so if somebody's like program more like women of color blah 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 you don't have like enough in your market I'm like oh thank you thank you for illuminating me to this blind spot and then I'd like realign my work whereas I know other people that makes people really angry like yeah it makes very yeah honey you are rarity because like a lot of people get defensive about that like they don't know how to take um take that information um are you familiar at all with uh, robin d'angelo yes uh, robin d'angelo yes you know she wrote white fragility yeah i just took that book on a vacation with two people yeah it was a mistake i should have left the book at home oh no <laughs> did people get defensive Ooh. no but that was not light reading for the vacay no but i mean she talks about that like when you, if you watch her she has, has a book white fragility and she's written several books she's an academic i can't remember where she teaches um but she also has a lot of talks on youtube and then for for the listeners i'll actually have a link to her book on the website for those of y'all who are interested in her talks, she talks about you know when she's essentially been called out for like her in, internalized racism mm -hmm. and how she's learned to not take offense at it mm -hmm. so like which she's been um told she's done something inappropriate she apologizes then she um asks what she can do to correct it mm -hmm. and then tells the person that she is open to anything they have to say in regards to something else that she may mess on because she recognizes that she's going to mess up because this system of you know white supremacy particularly here in the u.s is like really in the air it's you you can't see a lot of it because it's in the air that we breathe yeah. it's in the fabric of this country everywhere everywhere and she provides tools for that so like i appreciate that someone can come to you and say hey bridget uh this wasn't quite right and you're like okay i'm okay i'm gonna work to make make this right i just think if you come from a place of i think personally i think we're in the middle of a various wars so i don't also not like i'm not um uh, under any illusion let's say that like the world is like a happy place but i just think if you if you do build things from a from a space that of of friendship um and that, like so the market for me is about helping people make new friends um which then leads to hopefully like good good business but that's but like the the business element of it has always been secondary for me like the friendship element comes and so that it's a bit like you know if you're what did like my primary school teachers say like if you don't have candy for the whole class then you can't have any candy like you know so you try oh you try to, <laughs> that is not the american way <laughs> so that's kind of what I, I try and think about it i'm like okay how if this space isn't a good space for everyone then no one should be here like why and and i just not like i know i'm not like a blind believer in the work that i do on any level and so that means that that 
to do this work also means that you are participating in structures of discrimination where marginalized people are not just marginalized, but often like violently um, oppressed, suppressed. Um, you know, I, I also do like some implicit bias training, which I would encourage everyone to do. I know it's not like, oh yeah, so tell us about that. I'm serious, I'm deadly serious about it. Everyone to do it. If you're working in a curatorial role, like if you are choosing things, selecting things, then you should understand what you don't and do and don't like and why. Like it just would be this, for me, it's like elementary, but I'm also lucky because I, I have, I'm surrounded by a lot of wonderful people. So that also, it's good to, to have people who are, um, who can help you be a better person. I mean, it's interesting that you um, reference that, um, the, the implicit bias training, because um, while by, unfortunately, by, well, fortunately and unfortunately, my last night in Leipzig, I had to be on a, a panel um, that, I, that, that I had committed to participate in. I mean, it was really an involved process. You know, we were, we were compensated for it. But when the first things they asked us to talk about when we were on the call together to make the final decision was to talk about our biases, yes. positive and negative. Yes. And I had, I've been on many review panels for a lot of different things and that had never happened for me. And it was actually an incredibly, a wonderful experience because everybody, we were on the conference call, everybody ran around the, you know, the virtual room and talked about um, where, essentially where their place in the world. And when we were um, advocating for or not, or not for a particular arts organization, you could really have honest conversations about, um, about the merits um, and the needs of these um, organizations for this funding. And then at the end of it, when we made the final decision, even though when we came in, like I had, you know, obviously when you come in, you have different, you have a particular idea of which, okay, which organizations should get funding and, and which shouldn't. But when we made the final decision, we were, even though we were coming from all different places, we were all on the same page. Yeah. And yeah. I think, I think it was because we had that initial conversation of setting the groundwork. Okay. Here is where we are as individual people. Yeah. 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 And we could address it. And it wasn't like in a confrontational manner or like pointing the finger. It was just like, okay, this is, this is where we are. Yeah. Yeah. There's, a, there's this great exercise that also you can do in the comfort of your own home anytime. It's called the, I think it's called like the 12 and the 12, the 12 asks you to list the 12 people in your life who you trust outside of your family units. And so you, so you start by writing down their names and then you have like another 12 questions to answer. So it's like, what's their age? What's their gender? What's their sexual orientation? It's like old fashioned. It's like, it's a super old fashioned thing. And I also don't think this is the way that will like heal the world or something. Like it's much more, that's a much more complicated task. But th this is just a really good way to like map who, who you trust in the world, right? And so if you only, if there are only white people on that list, if there are only like people with high education on that list and you know, or if there are only people who make more money than you on that list, you know, like there's, it's just a really good way of clearly seeing like what you think is a trustworthy human being. And that's right. like, who are you going to put your faith in? Like when you are making curatorial decisions versus who you aren't. And like, so my, <laughs> my two, my two, mine was pretty good. Like there was a, it was pretty good, but there were the mm -hmm. two things. So the first one is that, 
all of my, I'm a real ableist. I have real, like, mm, mm-hmm. I really don't do enough for people with mobility or um, physical uh, impairments who need more help in, in space. I think it's also because, because I'm like running around very quickly, which is right. ba- bad. And then the other thing is that I have like a huge problem with old people. <laughs> <laughs> Like I really do because like, there's no one, there's no one on that. There was no one on that list above the age of like 35. And I was like, Ooh, Ooh, I got to like, what did, what did an old person, I love my grandparents. Like, where did this come from? Yeah. Yeah. And then you also try to start trying to understand like, why do I feel, why do I have these feelings? Like, why don't I have like, why do I organize an event that is so loud, you know, that, that deaf people can't participate in like, why why is that why is the structure that way and i think like like once you once you like make peace with the as as i said like once you make peace with the fact that the world is like a deeply deeply um fractured and unjust place Mm. then Mm -hmm. you actually have like an easier time making small adjustments that can have like very big impact and it also makes the the these kind of intolerable, impenetrable, hard questions about how to change structural injustice and oppression, oppression more approachable. For me, it suddenly becomes something that maybe I can influence even as an individual. And so that that just makes makes it being it makes it easier to be alive in this intolerable world. Oh, so powerful. So powerful. Woof. It's an interesting process that many of us are going through yeah. right now. And I hope hope one that will make life better yeah I hope so but I think it's going to get worse unfortunately yeah first. I mean I do too um you know uh, sometimes growth is painful you know so yeah it's it, we are oh what's that old Chinese proverb um may you live in interesting times I'm like oh these are these are some interesting times do you feel like you're having new discussions that you never had before around questions of like race, ethnicity, justice? Um, well, I I feel like um, what's happening with um, BIPOCs um, and like, I, I don't know if y'all adopted this term, um, terminology in the UK, but BIPOCs is like black indigenous and yeah. people of color. Um, is like amongst ourselves, we were having the, the I mean, we've been talking anyway. We've, we've been talking anyway. But just because of everything that's been happening here, particularly um, in the U.S. with COVID and the protests surrounding um, uh, the murder of George Floyd and just the the level of process that were sparked by that, um, a lot of us been have, have been in conversation about our, number one, our frustration with the system and, and the way things are, but also that discussion is really coming from a place like, okay, essentially we've had it (laughs) like, yeah. Um, and more people are demanding like specific changes and, um, but also there are like, um, folks of color who are like in an industry level who, um, have, who are working in predominantly white organizations who have like really said, you know, I'm done. I can't, navigate this any anymore yeah because it's hard because not only do we have to we are we are in a position that we have to do the job so it's like the job description but many of us um feel an obligation to BIPOCs to um you know practice equity and inclusion and a lot of times 
those efforts are um, are sometimes like sabotaged yeah. or halted yeah. because of this. A lot, a lot of the higher ups or the people that we work for have not yet dealt with how they still perpetuate um, white supremacy and white fragility. Yeah. And I think sometimes it's harder. And I think, well, not all, sometimes, I think a lot of times it's, it's harder to navigate that in these spaces because, you know, you're dealing with white liberal folks who think, you know, who really, they think they woke. Yeah. 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 And, yeah. you know, if you think you're already where you need to be. No. Then, no. yeah. And it is, it is um, incredibly, um, you know, I've been in this industry for, um, for actually 10 years. Um, my first few years were as an archival researcher. Then after that, um, you know, now I'm on the, the industry side. And um, yeah, I welcome, yeah, I'm thankful for the opportunities that uh, my, my job has provided me. And there's, there's definitely been um, some frustration. But I know what shifted for me is like, oh, for uh, certain things, I know um, when I'm trying to advocate for certain aspects of, of inclusion and diversity, like particularly within the past few months, I have not received the pushback. And really, yeah. that is some cases. And, and really, that's the minimum that, that I want. Like, I don't know if you, you know, but ideally, I would love, like, for every arts organization to engage in um, anti-racism training, like, at all, and all of that. And some, some are, and a lot aren't. Um, but my, my thing is like, don't get in my way. Yeah. Yeah. Don't get in my way because me having to deal with you getting in my way is, um, it's, I have to expend extra energy. Yeah. And you know, I'm, I'm 49. Um, I am, I'm born and raised in Georgia. I'm one generation out of segregation. My mother went to segregated schools. My grandparents were sharecroppers. Okay. I'm, I was, I'm very conscious of the fact that I was the first person in my family and to vote, be able to register to vote without any opposition. You know, I'm very conscious of that fact. And, but also, you know, my, particularly my grandfather, um, and I think a lot of BIPOCs have this, um, is we feel an obligation to like bring each other up in any way we can. Yeah. You know, and I, in my job, I have, I'm a, I'm a gatekeeper. It's a small yeah. gate, you know, oh, it's a but gate. it's a gate. It's, it's a gate. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm very, it's a gate. It's a gate. Like, it's yeah. A gate. Yeah. But I'm very conscientious of, um, of the fact that, and this is another discussion that's been happening in, um, amongst the doc community here in the U S of the impact of what happens when people who were essentially kind of parachuting in a community that's not theirs, um, telling, basically telling other people's stories, you know, but, and also how those particular filmmakers are supported um, in ways that the people within those communities who are filmmakers or who want to be filmmakers aren't supported. Yeah. So I bring that into my review process. So what I'm, um, when I'm looking through proposals, I'll ask those questions. So if it's not a person of color on the team, I will say, why? Yeah. Okay. If there, if there is, and it's clear from the proposal that that person has absolutely no power, I'll yeah. ask why. Yeah. No, I'll ask, how are they giving back to the community? Yeah. You know, I'll add, ask challenging questions about the audience. So I, I do um, feel... I mean, these are things that I've done anyway, but also I do feel more empowered now. Yeah. And because 
and because a lot of people, I don't know, well, some people are very uh, making conscious changes, um, particularly powers that be, but then, but some are, because they've been, they're having their feet held to the fire, are trying to, um, in a way, kind of appear like they are. So I, I'm, I'm like, okay, I'm going to take advantage of that. Yeah, I know. Do please do because it makes me feel so. I get like an, it gives me what I call a tummy ache. Like I get a, I get it because I also am not interested in in participating in performance. In no, no. It, like you said, it got time for that. Yeah, and it's it's so hard because especially when you're working in these old white European institutions, um, it's it's so hard to know what like navigating the the fine line between performative change and actual change is really really hard and 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 also the i mean the interesting thing about the the this new move black lives matter movement for me it's been like it's a bit like my feminist awakening like once you see structural injustice that works against gender parity it's unseeable. Once you see it, it's there. It's in, and it's everywhere, and it's everywhere you look. And now, now, like the 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 fabric of the European film industry that I work in and I'm a part of is so discriminatory towards people of color. It's so discriminatory towards trans people. It's so it's just so so cis male gendered white. The structure is that, and so to change it is a really really difficult process. And it's and it's old and. And it's, it's deep it's, roots. Yeah, deep it's, roots. it's yeah. really, really hard. And so, so you get some people who, again, for me, I don't have a problem when people criticize my work. It's fine. Go crazy. You're going to be right 50% of the time and I'm going to say thank you and change. And then the other 50% of the time, unfortunately, I'm going to file you under my idiot file and then like, you're going to have to do something real good to get out of it. But like, you won't be invited to dinner. But like the, the, like, so for me, that's like easy, but it's not easy even for people in the organization I work with. It's not easy in the greater structure that we work in, especially because we find ourselves in this bizarre technocracy at the moment, which is like working with technocrats is the worst. Um, but so it's, but I, yeah, it's like, so what, do you, what am I doing? Am I doing something that is long? You know, it's a long term game. This isn't something that you can fix by like one hire or one, one whatever like this is this is a much much longer deeper progress and I need training so I need money to pay a trainer so that I have the language the right words to express what I feel so that I can change something because I'm lucky that my voice is like loud enough that people <laughs> yes it is <laughs> I'll take that microphone and yell in it and then hand it over it's fine it's fine for me don't care um I'm actually very shy I took public speaking courses I would really encourage anyone who feels like they're not being heard. This is so silly, but like to take a public speaking course because it will help you like really just mastering the art of using your voice, which I now also am learning all about uh, the people who don't feel like their voice is heard, to, heard from or who are constantly interrupted. I also have been making this joke, but it's like did a lot of my jokes are like deadly serious. But my joke is that actually like a life spent in Zoom is also very very good for the um the marginalized cause let's say you we don't get into we don't get interrupted like we, i remember when we were having like the first conversations around um gender parity like at the european film market or in Cannes or even in doc leipzig 
like at the, the panel discussions we'd organize, we would be constantly, again, I have to swear it makes me so mad, fucking interrupted. I'm, Aust I'm Australian, we swear a lot. It's like also one of our many shortcomings, but like this is, and also I swear so good in German. It's my colleagues <laughs> are like, who taught you this? Where did you learn this language? And I'm like, I don't know. If you, if you want to know something, you can always find it, you know. <laughs> but so, so um, when we would organize these, really serious discussions about around gender parity where we would be showing studies you know like with the data you know with like the numbers that don't lie like again like people who are ruled by their internal misogyny who come in all all genders all all, all honey yes yeah all roles all, from all walks of life um would interrupt and just say i don't believe you and it's like but the Look, like, he did the, the I study. got the paper. Yeah. I got the numbers. You your feelings don't count in this discussion. We're having like a, a, like, I recognize your feelings. They are real, but they do not count as an argument here. And so, so one of like the wonderful things I think that's been happening through, especially like at Cannes, there was great, like, who even thought like at the festivals, like, the, with like its roots in nationalism and fascism and all of these things, who would have thought that that is a, that can be a space for this incredible new wave of discourse of intelligent people sharing their voice and sharing their stories and refusing to um, maintain the, even like the classic discussion formats, you know, of like a moderated discussion, like these things that maybe almost are more in like a performance art space, but are so like socio-politically relevant. And for me, so for me, like this, there, there are some, there are benefits to, to the, this lockdown space and, 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 and yeah, I don't know. I'm just, I'm so in, in awe of, of people who are so, like brave so much braver than than i am to share and and i know a lot of people um not just in film or in documentary but across all walks of life are feeling more empowered to to say something you know but if that I mean because feel supported you know yeah feel supported um so i want to ask you about documentary association of europe because um when i was in leipzig leipzig you were telling me that <laughs> i'm gonna start this organization <laughs> yeah i remember we were sitting in the on the couch and we were just like catching up and so i was like oh my goodness like this is awesome so um i want you to kind of like talk about why you decided to um, start this organization? So my, the birth of my child day, my firstborn child documentary association of Europe, which I also now have a co-director, co my friend Marion Schmidt, who is helping me. So I also just want to make sure that she is right up there at the front with me. Cause she's really, she's carrying so much of it with me while we're on this journey. Um, but uh so it comes from like a series of rejections. Again, like when people tell you that your ideas are unfeasible um, and that a new world order is not possible, which I don't, I just, I just can't believe that's true. I just, I, ref, I refuse, I refuse this information I, I, because it has to, like the world has to change. And there are these incredibly inspiring and brave people changing it every day in their own special and small and sometimes big ways. Like this, this spectrum for change happening isn't like this top-down thing where, one, you know, like, but although it can be too, it can be from all kinds of different ways. But the, so the Documentary Association of Europe was born because it's like, I really felt like we needed a, 
first of all, we needed a lobby. Like it was actually very pragmatic, a pragmatic thing. Like we need, we need one voice for documentary filmmaking in all of the myriad of forms that it also takes now. So this isn't really just about like this highly elite creative documentary space, but it's also about like everything else. It's about all of the factual programming you see on television. It's about all of the AR and VR pieces that you're experiencing either at home or in a film festival context or whatever. And it's about making sure that we have access to the things that are rightly ours. Because in Europe, especially like these are our, this is our tax money. This is our, you know. Yes. Yeah. Cause it, and you, you get your money's worth. Yeah. And I want my money's worth. Thank you. I pay all my taxes like a good citizen and I would like my money's worth. And so, um, so I need, so I, I needed a framework to start, to start doing that because it really wasn't happening in the way that it was supposed to be happening. Also, I think, and there's a, there's a generation of really amazing filmmakers and journalists out there who are working outside of the structures that, that for example, Doc Leipzig provides for them or that IDFA is providing for them um, and who just have never felt like welcome in those spaces. And that, like coming to terms with that is a shock because I really want to be, a, as I said, like a welcoming, open, open-hearted person. And I think that, I mean, it's also no, no beef on IDFA because I love that festival and I love being there and they are so open and so welcoming and try so hard to like include everybody at the table. And I was talking to someone from Pakistan this week and she was saying that she, meet, she met like all of these Pakistani filmmakers for the first time at IDFA. And I was like, it's hilarious, like that we have to go to Amsterdam to be able to do it. And so, so to start the organization was a, re a rejection of the idea that things can't change and a rejection of the idea that everything is good and that everything is fine and that we should be grateful for what we have, like a real re a rejection of that. And also about, about, I think I was like, the world has changed so much since like last year, since last October. But at the time, I think I was like very inspired also by like the climate change movement and the idea that, that, that like the media, like um, tainted media was putting kind of this disaster story also about climate change. So it was either like denial yeah. or like, got or no, it's hopeless. Yeah. You've got no future. So why, why dream of one? Why take, taking your dreams away what kind of world is that europe is like a big place and it's actually not as homogenous as it probably appears from the outside and the there is there are power imbalances all over it and the when i was first thinking about launching the organization i went to, and knocked on a lot of different people's doors to ask what they thought and what like there's no point in doing something if nobody wants to be a part of it so i was like what, what do, you, do you need a new network? Do you need a lobby? How should it look? What should its value system be? Like all of these things. And, um, and first, at first, because again, like fighting your internal misogyny is like an, it's a, it's like an ongoing process that never stops. And, and you have to, and you have these like learned behaviors. And one of the learned, learned behaviors is that age equals expertise, you know? So like somebody who's old and been doing something for a long time, of course they've collected like a lot of experiences but also like people with specific experiences and lived experiences and what you were saying about like um racism or racial injustice and inequality being like in the air in north america like there's a lot of stuff in in our air and and i also think like if if you if you feel a microaggression 
and you can only feel it. Like you don't have any supported data to be able to say, look, here's the micro or macro question. If you can feel it, then it's real, you know, it's there and it's believable. And like, it's, and so, so I felt like excluded from the old European power structure at B. And I, I had, I have come to a point now where I was like, they're never going to let me in. Why do I want to be in there? What, what is in there that says to me that I, that, that, that I want to be a part of that? Like, I don't have the same value. This is not my system of values. Like I want to get away from exploit, exploitative models. I want to move away from this idea that people have to suffer to work in the arts. I want to move away from this high elite stuff. I'm not, I'm not like interested in class warfare. I'm not interested in participating in class warfare. So why, why am I like knocking on this door when like, it makes no sense for me to be in there. They're not the kind of people who I want to like have a dinner with. Yeah. Uh, not all access is good access. No, no. And so I was like, ah, why am I doing this? Why am I re why am I perpetuating the like models of exploitation and the models of discrimination that I that I don't believe in. So first I was like asking all of these like old pillars of the, of the, um, of the, uh, of the circuit, let's say, or of the industry to, to join the association. And then I was like, ah, but actually it's not for them. So like they're, they're also welcome to be there. And I love, I love all of them very, very much. And they've all helped me so, so much like over the last, um, 15 years or 10 years or whatever that I've been working. So like, God bless them and thank you for everything. But actually, like this network is for people who are like me, like who don't, who feel not like excluded, but who feel like there has to be an alternative, like that this this old system doesn't need to be perpetuated, but like it can be changed, that it is malleable and we do have a lot of power. And if we say clearly the things that we want, then we can probably get them. And and so that's why, so that's why actually the membership the membership basis at the moment skews probably to like the smaller countries as well as like the Germans. And of course it's like my, my extended network, but it's starting now also to be people from outside of my network, which is really exciting. And then what we, so when, when I, I was in Australia, when like in March, when like the pandemic broke out, <laughs> this is also hilarious. I was like in my childhood bedroom being like, I, I cannot get stuck here. Like I must get out. This cannot be where I stay. I cannot, this is like, I cannot, I can't, yeah, I like, I love, as I said, I love my parents very much. I love my family very, very much. I'm very happy to spend time with them. But I was like, if I get, if I get stuck in Australia for six months, like what, what's going to happen to the association? What's going to happen to like Doc Leipzig? What's going to happen to like my life, my apartment? Like, I like my apartment. I need to get back there, my things. Like, anyway, so, so I was like, but also because Australia is geographically like so isolated, it all felt like, kind of removed although I had flown in via Hong Kong and so I knew that it was like no joke I was like okay this pandemic is no joke it's going like this is going to be an economic catastrophe because to fly over empty Hong Kong is such a bizarre and surreal experience and then um I just like I think that nobody really could have could believe what would happen in March April May June and now July I didn't think that this was going to be the year of like fire and brimstone revolution but I'm pretty I'm very excited that it might be like so yeah so I was there and and people kept writing to me saying like oh you need to do a study like you need to go go like put a survey together and ask people 
like how they're doing. And I was like, I don't think that actually that's what we should do at all because I don't think anybody knows how they're doing yet. It's too soon. Like we can do that in like six months or in 12 months. I don't think there's anything to collect yet. Like you have to give people some time to deal, to deal with the situation. And then what I thought was though that the other e emails that I was constantly getting was like, uh, like I'm afraid, like this and this isn't happening and I'm, I'm scared. And then I was like, okay, well, group, like group situations will make, make it like less scary because also the things that people are saying are the same thing. So it's like my screening is canceled. This festival is online. I don't know how I'm going to make money this year. And I was like, well, I don't know either. Cause I'm not like a, I'm not an Oracle. So I don't know what's going to happen in the future. So I, I don't know how this is going to be either, but what I can do is collect people together who have the same fears and, and find out like also if their narratives are the same. Um, and then, because then you also, you can talk to like the festival or to the exhibitors and say like, you need to dissuade this fear. So tell us what you think or share the revenues or whatever. And, and so, so that was really good. And what's also been really good for the network is because, because everything is so hard at the moment, people are very honest. They're like very honest about their needs and that makes it much easier to actually do things that are in their best interest or like helpful. So that's what the hangouts have been. And then the, then we also did a bunch of consultations like the same way that um, Field of Vision was doing, like inspired by Jeannie Finlay. And we were like sharing a lot of information with each other, which was very nice. Also the other strange and wonderful outcome of the COVID crisis is new forms of collaboration. So like actually people are much, much more willing to share information with each other, I think, than they were in the past, because it's just so unclear, like what's working and not working. So, so I really enjoyed that part, even if the administrative part is like very, very hard for Marion and I to deal with. It's hard, but like to bring, to bring new voices to the table is really great. It's been really exciting. But I think we didn't, we didn't do also in our, in our prep preparation to launch the, the, network and enough of a deep dive into diversity and inclusion. I wish that I had started this journey that I'm on now earlier and, or had thought about it more concretely earlier because there is this liberal tendency, especially I think if you're like cis, liberal, white, middle-class, mildly educated, friendly person, that that is enough, like that that's you doing enough. And that me like Gurria, making sure that there are projects made by filmmakers of color and that there are projects that are made by um, the, about the communities from the communities that we have like trans inclusive, like all of that stuff. So I'm just thinking that like, I don't, I don't need to talk about that or I just like I'm doing it and that's like enough, but actually it's like, it's not even like a drop in the fucking ocean of um, reparations that need to happen. And it's um, this guerrilla, this guerrilla style, of like just quietly doing diversity and inclusion is bad like because if the whole if it's not in the whole structure that it doesn't it doesn't even like to me it doesn't even count anymore it doesn't count like if the human resources manager of the festival is like only hiring also other nice white liberals like me and also like shortening the contracts of the one person of color you know or furloughing the one person of color in the organization then like, what do you do? Like, again, like, do you just carry on and like, so that you can sleep at night quietly? Or do you start making like a bigger, louder 
more sustained noise about like the, the bigger picture thinking. So I really wish that like I had thought about that more before we started the network because we were also thinking more just about like making sure that people from smaller, smaller regions of, they, they have like even an official title, like um, small audiovisual output, um, which is measured in the European Union by how many people buy um, cinema tickets, essentially, I think. And so like there are, there are four large countries, Germany, Italy, Spain, France, and it was the UK, but we said Bella Ciao to, to that. We were trying to make sure that people who felt like they were from, as Daria said, like Mars or Venus or Pluto or, I don't know, another bloody galaxy, felt, felt like this was an organisation that was for them. But I think like probably we could have like dug, dug deeper than that. Now it feels a bit superficial. But we're, but we're working and growing. And also the good thing about having something new is that like it's very quick to ma to, and malleable. Also, I think like what's important for everyone to know is that we are very open for international members. So we're called the Documentary Association of Europe, but actually like we don't care where you come from. You can be a part of the organization no matter where you're from. And it's been good to have day, it's been good to have day as like a, like a space for like dreams. It's been good. It's like returned my dreams to me. So actually I think I am like maybe less angry than I was like last year. Bridget believes in making connections and building relationships based on respect and friendship. She is a disruptor who enthusiastically refuses to accept the status quo and is willing to engage in the sometimes difficult work of self-reflection. And as she says, there is a power that comes from seeing the world as it actually is, even when that world is intolerable at times. This is a space where courage, authenticity, and where actual change, not performative, resides. And as Dr. Phil says, you can't change what you don't acknowledge. So, if you want that change to happen, be bold, be audacious, and as Bridget says, make a bigger, louder, and sustained noise, and make sure you get heard. Today's program was hosted by Tony Bell and produced and edited by Rennell Schubert. Music is by Sierra Thomas.